Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, host of the RouterFlex podcast and founder and CEO of our day job recruiting firm, RouterFlex. We hope you enjoy this episode. And as a reminder, please subscribe to the podcast for updates and news. Finally, if you haven't already, check out the series of books we've published on hiring, interviewing, and overall career advice titled The RouterFlex Guide, available on Amazon. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Most homeowners don't have the time or expertise to properly take care of their home, which causes costly issues to arise. That's where Cura Home Maintenance comes in. We're a full-service, routine maintenance company that was developed by a certified home inspector. Each quarter, we service our clients' homes following manufacturer's recommendations to properly maintain all the necessary appliances. We provide the materials and expertise to prolong the life of your property, creating a healthy and efficient environment for your family. From top to bottom, we'll maintain and service your home. To get started, we have a property inspection to determine what needs to be maintained, and a maintenance plan is created based on your preferences. From refrigerator coils to filters, vents, and drains, we do it all, and we do it well. Contact us today for your free routine maintenance inspection and never worry about your maintenance again. Joe Brew on the Rider Flex podcast. How are you, Joe? Good. How are you, Steve? Uh, first thing I got to ask about, and I'm sure you've gotten this a million times, like the last name Brew growing up with your buddies. I mean, that, I mean, you have like was... the cool, you have the coolest last name in high school, right? I mean, come on. I mean, I think I think it really came into fashion in college, right? But okay. yes, it, it's a it's a great name, uh, you know. And in, in addition to meaning beer, which is unto <laughs> itself great, it also means coffee, as does the word Joe. So you can brew a cup of Joe. And there was a period of my life where I worked at a coffee shop with a girl named Laurel Coffee, which is also amazing. So so I my 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 uh, caffeine addiction, I fully blame on my on my name and I, and I won't get into my beer addiction, but it's there. Now you're single, like when you're single life, right? I mean, gosh, I mean, <laughs> what a great opening line, you know, you walk up and you're like, yeah, my name's Joe Brew. And they're like, no, come on. <laughs> well, it, it's funny. It's it's such a good last name, you know, and this happens to my siblings too, because I have three of them. Rarely do people call me Joe or did they call me Joe growing up? I was Joe Brew to everybody. And Joe, my sister was Anna Brew and my brother was Ben Brew. And there's such short names that you can just say it as, as one, yeah. you know, so you I can totally call me Joe it. Brew if you want. I totally get it. Now, you spent a lot of time in Spain, right? Or did you grow up in Spain? I did not grow up in Spain. Oh. I do live there now. My wife is Catalan. So that's a region of Northeast Spain. Okay. okay. Um, yeah. So it's it's kind of home now. Gotcha. But you went to college there, right? You got some, you, you did a bunch of schooling there. I did. So I, I went to undergrad in the United States, Swanee, Tennessee. Okay. Uh, and then Tennessee, that, I don't hear, I don't. I don't hear any of that accent in there. Well, I'm a Floridian, so, you know, we're hard to classify. I'm a Southerner, but uh, an interesting one. Uh, and then the rest of my schooling I did uh, outside of the U.S. So I I, I was in France, um, Spain, Denmark, Netherlands. Uh, and, and yeah, cool. I met my wife while studying a master's in public health in Spain. And, and you know, kind of, I mean, fell in love with her, of course, and, and fell in love with, Europe 
and and that's that's where was I'm she, raising well, my three was kids. She in the cla- was she in the classroom? And you looked over and you're like, okay, I need to I need to find out who that is. Tell me about uh, how it. She happen. was not. You know, it's it's funny. So I, I lived with, I, I lived when I was doing my masters. I was dirt poor, and I lived in a house shared by ten students, and uh, two of those students were Catalan, so from this region of Catalonia. I and I remember they were friends of mine. These two young ladies. And and I remember just finding it so fascinating. As an American, I wrestled with this idea: What do you mean you speak a different language? But you're are you right. Spanish? Are you not Spanish? Like, um, and, and I just thought that was a cool, interesting thing. And in in Coloma, my wife came to visit one of them because they were friends, and that's that's when we met. And nice. and you kind of hit it off. I, I had that summer. I was scheduled to go to Ethiopia for the summer to northern Ethiopia, Tigray, a very difficult region to do field work in maternal health. Wow! And and she joined me. Right. Oh, so it was kind of like this is a trial by fire dating. And so we were yeah, in Ethiopia I would, I would a say, few months. I would say so. <laughs> yeah. And but, you know, you learn a lot about a person when you take them outside of their comfort zone. And and we hit it off and we bonded and we said, hey, you know what? This works really well, actually. And I feel like in those few months together in Ethiopia, we got a few years worth of dating experience. And that, that's now, great. You know, I'm, now I'm envisioning like, are you talking like hot, like the bug nets, like the, the, the bed that's in one of those like kind of half uh not even like yeah, a house. So, so, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to visualize this <laughs> yeah i mean late, later we moved to mozambique which is southern africa we, we had we went there with our at the time one-year-old and that was very much a super malaria endemic region we stepped wow. in the bud net you know 40 degrees celsius 104 fahrenheit every day but ethiopia was different it was highlands so it was, it was really you know high altitude oh which what, one what is, is the very, altitude yeah, I mean, where it? we were, where we were, I think it was around 2000 meters. So 7,000 feet or so high enough that, that there's wow. no malaria. There was plenty of other, uh, plenty of other disease, you know, tuberculosis is, is very prevalent in the area, mm. HIV AIDS. Um, right. But, but it meant that you didn't have to sleep in a bed net. You didn't have to take malaria prophylaxis. It was one of the, one of the great things about Highlands, Ethiopia. Did you, um, I mean, this is, you're talking about, you went to high school in Gainesville, right? Gainesville, Florida. So I'm, I'm a, how did, I'm a, how did a Gainesville, Florida boy end up traveling around the world to different places? How did, let's go backwards. Let's go backwards. Yeah. Tell me about, tell me about mom, dad, siblings. What'd your dad do? Give me some history here so I can sure, kind yeah. of tie this together. I grew up, I grew up in Gainesville. In fact, I was just there the other day visiting. Okay. Um, Gainesville is a great place. It's, it's a, you know, North Florida and North Florida is very much the South. It's a kind of traditional. Yeah. Yeah old school place you know swamps and rivers and springs and and oak trees with spanish moss but it's also a big university city which brings a lot of you know diversity um, in terms of people from all over the world coming there to study teach there research there uh i i think my parents you know there were four of us growing up four kids um there are four of us and and they did a very good job of instilling in us a sense of openness and kind of wonder at the world. So right. everything from, you know, the the kind of, let's say, exotic Korean biochemical students who were doing their PhDs to the, you know, Central American farm workers who were marching through town to, you know, I, I, I saw how my parents related to those different kinds of people and and right. treated them as as equals and, and people to to learn from and and that instilled in me a sense of kind of wonder and curiosity about culture, even though I didn't travel a lot growing up. Um, and then I, I was really fortunate to go to a place, you know, I went to 
university in Swanee, Tennessee. Swanee is a very small university, but liberal arts school, but, you know, does a really good job of exposing young people to the world. So I went and studied abroad. I got funding from the university to do summers in different places, you know, Guatemala, I was going every summer. And I got to kind of see the rest of the world a bit as a young man. And, And I fell in love with, you know, international work. And that's kind of how I stumbled upon public health because it's something that's so applicable to international work. You know, if you get your JD or your MD, you're kind of locked into a country. But if you if you study public health, hey, people need health everywhere. So so it was a way to keep kind of all the doors open in terms of, you know, the globe. What'd your folks do? What'd your dad do? What'd your mom do? Yeah, uh, my mom is still a kind of farming expert. So she works a lot in organic farming and, and kind of, uh, translational farming practice. So teaching communities, schools, et cetera, about farming and, you know, kind of, let's say farm to table stuff, school programs, farming as part of education. Okay. Um, and, and my dad is an engineer. He worked at a power plant, kind of a, a blue collar job. Uh, you know, it, I, I would say like their professions were not super influential in me. And it was more what was... they were doing outside of, outside of work that, you okay. know, when they were with me, that that had a lot of influence on on my growing up. Now, see, I just assumed you were going to tell me your dad was like a doctor or a lawyer or whatever since you went on to get your doctorate. That's interesting. How about that? Well, how about are you the only doctor in the family? Um, I yeah, I never thought of it. I guess I am. I mean, okay. I, I actually don't think much about degrees. I, the more I, time I spend with a lot of people with a lot of letters after their name, the less <laughs> I think I don't think they really signal anything besides kind of the willingness to waste your 20s. So I, I don't I don't pay much attention to it, including my own. I'll never present myself as doctor, uh, especially given that I have no medical medically helpful <laughs> uh, experience of any sort. But uh, well, you're a humble guy too. That's nice. Did you ever? Were you always straight A's, good student? I mean, did you ever? Did you venture no, out a little I, I bit? I think I'm a did, typical. Did... I'm a typical male, okay. in that we 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 bloom a little bit late. Uh, okay. We have to be motivated on we have to be motivated to apply ourselves you know the did you have a did you have a little fun at tennessee down in tennessee did you did, did you venture out a little i i did you know i mean i by, by the time i got to college i i had a reason to be motivated right i, I had seen that hey education can open lots of doors i see middle okay. school high school maybe a different a different story I got um you. i was also in, in college i was an athlete so i was a, and i still am i was, I, I love to run oh. and, and that that has the uh, I mean, it, athletics teaches you all sorts of lessons in life, right? Oh, about yeah. discipline, about perseverance, about oh, yeah. oh, um, yeah. consistency. But it also it also has the good fortune, especially when you're at those formative ages, kind of keeping you out of trouble, right? So yeah, a Friday true. night, if you're thinking about the competition the next day, you're less likely to, you know, to, That's to good make point. too many mistakes. So so I think I think by almost sheer luck of being an athlete, I, I stayed out of. I didn't did have too run? much fun did, in college. Did you run all four years? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. How about that? Wow. Okay. Anybody, and you know, I'm a recruiter for a living, right? So I, 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 you know, anytime my team is talking to somebody that played college sports all four years, I don't care what division it is. If they worked part-time, went to school and played college sports all four years, like I want to talk to that person. They're, they're, they're coachable, they're coachable, great work ethic, great people skills, yeah. team oriented, all the rest of it. Yeah. And, you know, that's my experience too, right? You know, knowing lots of fellow athletes. I also worked part-time all through college, right? Just to make 
to make ends meet. But but I I, I used to think it was just fun. And it's like, I just like to win. And I just like to race and stuff. like. And then you realize you're actually touching on something much deeper. I think a lot of collegiate athletes, I was D3, by the way. And, and yeah, but still, no it doesn't matter. A doesn't big matter. Deal, but, yeah. but a lot of collegiate athletes, they finish college. You know, they don't go on to be pro. And, right. and they, well, they have this... Most. Oh, oh yeah, exactly. And, and and they have this kind of hole in their life. And and I, a lot of them rediscover sport a little bit later, as I did. So later in my 20s, I realized like, man, I'm missing something in my life. Yeah. And yeah. it's that consistency, that routine. I mean, even it's just the ability to enjoy a meal after a really hard workout, right? the good night's totally. sleep you get when you're a little yeah. bit drained, yes. you know, and, and so I've I've rediscovered sport, not with a sense of, oh, I want to win things, but just as part of my like general well-being and i gotta tell you now working you know quote unquote intellectual work where you're trying to get your brain to come up with ideas and solve problems so often the best ideas come in that one hour of forced silence i mean almost yes. meditative silence where you're out on yes. a run a swim a bike ride totally uh, and not just staring at a screen or in a meeting right so I, I think it's such a good routine breaker to have some sort of athletic discipline in your life regardless of what it is it could be lifting weights or it could be anything you know anything. dancing whatever anything i was just telling my wife the other day uh i saw her, i said here's when i get my ideas the, here's the three places when ideas pop into my head because my brain has enough room to think about it without staring at the screen or looking at the laptop when i'm in the shower <laughs> i actually have a little voice recorder like on a shelf outside the shower where i can just reach out and like that's like, genius so in the shower, on the treadmill, and then I, I live in Colorado, so I do a lot of camping in the mountains. And so if I'm in the mountains where I can't get connected and I have time to think, I'll come back with, with 10 ideas, you know? So you're right. Yeah, it, it forces your brain to to be able to to get creative. A hundred percent. And you don't even have to try. The reality is when you take away distraction, the yes. brain has processes that are ready to go and they start piecing things together and you yep. just sit and don't constantly expose yourself to to you know dopamine <laughs> through social media or whatever and, and the brain starts to say hey wait a second what if we did this this way instead of that way and then you have that one of those breakthrough light bulb moments you know couldn't agree more uh real quick i know we'll get into business but uh, you, did you say three kids three toddlers or two i i have three so uh, one girl two boys um actually the the youngest is turning two today so we, right. we had kind of a cupcake and candle morning uh, and the others are uh, five and eight. So I'm in the thick of it, you know? Wow. So you decided to do a startup, try to raise a Series A and have three toddler little kids at home all at the same time. Congratulations. You know, it's it's. <laughs> I, I don't have a lot of free time, but I don't, I like enjoy everything I'm doing, you know? So, so I'm, I get to my bed at the end of the day, put my head down and fall right asleep. Yeah. I'm guessing. Yeah. I'm guessing it doesn't take you long to fall asleep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, what's your wife do? Well, she's busy with three little toddlers at home. So I'm guessing that's a big part of it. Yeah. So that, that's, that's job. Number one is, is kind of rearing the kids and, and running the household, which is no easy feat. Oh, oh um, yes, she, yes. she is a, she's a teacher by profession. She has a master's degree in educational psychology. Okay. Um, she, uh, was teaching for several years. She stopped now and she's starting kind of a, a space in our town. We live in a very small town, for kind of alternative pedagogical activities. So outside of school, how do you engage your children in huh? young children, right? Her specialty is, is early childhood education. Okay. How do you engage okay. your children in activities which are which are healthy, where they're growing, where they're learning, but are not kind of forced the forced discipline of, you know, 
school structure because they already and get hopefully so much it's, of that. And you're talking about doing stuff besides staring at their tablet, I hope. Yeah, of course. And, and, and you know, she, she, she's a <laughs> big fan of the Steiner, Joseph Steiner, Waldorf tradition oh, of education, okay. which is okay. very much about, you know, simplicity and, you know, like even, even the toys don't have faces. You don't have like a police toy. You just have a wooden block because then it can be anything and you use your imagination. It's a police yeah. one day and it's a doctor the other day and it's a teacher the next day. So, so very much trying to stimulate children's imagination and, and kind of do education through play. Now with your relationship, husband and wife and her having that degree, does she go, so Joe, now how does that make you feel? Does she start analyzing? Does she, does she start? <laughs> you know, fortunately, I think she, she limits her her uh, application of her expertise to children, although I'm like very close to her target population in terms of maturity, I do think uh, it does. I mean, it's a huge I, I, I benefit and our family benefits greatly because she's an expert in children. And so I, I, you know, my kids are acting up one way or another. I have an instinct to, hey, let's do this. And she's like, hold on a second. Maybe he just needs to cry it out. Maybe he needs to feel this yeah. way. Maybe we need to listen to it. And so I, I, I learned a ton from her. I mean, also she's, cool. you know, been a teacher for many years. So cool, cool. The, the amount of person time she has taught is is far more than any parent can accumulate. So she's got a yeah. lot of experience with kids and, and I benefit from that for sure. Cool. Well, I appreciate you sharing some of that stuff with the listeners, Joe. Thank yeah, you for, for some of the personal. So what were you going to do? You, you, you get out of school. What was the plan? What, what were you going to, you know, traveling around, you, you add the analyst, data scientist, Talk to me before yeah. Hive, before Hive, what was the plan? Yeah, I mean, I, I was kind of early 20s, a wanderer and trying to figure it all out. Um, at okay. one point, a guy who was really formative in my thinking, uh, he's a professor of medicine at the University of Florida, epidemiologist. Uh, now he's in his 90s, I think, this Parker Small. He he all gave right. me a book called The Death of a Disease by, by a guy named D.H. Henderson, and None of us know Henderson's name. He's not famous. We know the, you know, the local football star, but we don't know this guy. And then he was the guy who for the CDC led and then the WHO later led the smallpox eradication campaign in the oh. 70s. So so basically uh, eliminated, eradicated smallpox. Right now, see, isn't that and, isn't that crazy? Isn't that, you just mentioned you just touched on a nerve right there. Yeah, we know the local college football wide receiver name but meanwhile we don't know that guy's name you would yeah, think yeah. that guy and would be <laughs> you know of, of all the things humanity has done think of the stuff you learn in elementary school we went to the moon we built the pyramids we you know perhaps our greatest accomplishment is the eradication of smallpox just Seriously, in terms it's, of, a, it's up there yeah and in terms there. of human lives saved and it's yes. a gift given to us by this generation of people like henderson that wow. and that gift keeps giving and giving and giving because every year a million people don't die of smallpox. And because it's a non-event, we don't even notice it, right? But but Parker Small's gift to me of this book mm. and his kind of prodding at me to say, you should do public health. And he, he convinced me that, look, if you want to save, because at one point I toyed with maybe going back to school and okay. doing medicine. Okay. He said, if you want to save dozens or hundreds or thousands of lives, go and do medicine. And if you want to save okay. millions of lives, go and do public health. He was trying to kind of steer me away from medicine and towards public health, which I didn't even know was a thing. Right. All right. And, and that that set me on a course where I got really interested in it. And, you and you know, Henderson is such a great example of a guy who none of us know about, but he saved millions of lives. I mean, millions and millions of lives because wow. he was able to do these 
you know, his his patient was not an individual. His patient was a population. And in his case, it was the global population. But there are so many public health problems from infectious disease like malaria, tuberculosis, HIV, AIDS, to chronic stuff, you know. The- that, many, that many Americans don't see. But you've uh, seen traveling around, you've seen, uh, you know, what 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 a vast majority of Americans haven't seen, right? You've seen yeah, real and, problems. You've, and, you you've know, seen... I would even, I think, I think it's true that the, the kind of big burden of infectious disease is no longer as large in the United States. But I mean, the United States also, we have, we have populations that suffer unduly. I mean, diabetes, chronic heart disease, obesity, there, there are epidemics raging that get no airtime. You know, they're yeah. not flashy. They're, they're, they're not trendy. Uh, but they cause a lot of suffering, you know, and, and to the extent that you can move the needle all ever so slightly on any of those things, you can you can affect thousands of people's lives. Isn't the isn't the stat obesity is like 40 percent or so, it's some massive number, isn't it? Yeah, I, I don't I don't know the exact number, Um, but, you know, it, it's interesting. I think of obesity a lot because. I, I go back and forth between Europe and the United States, and it's just drastically different numbers. Oh, I bet. Oh, and I yeah. will tell you, I know Europeans really well. I know Americans really well. It is not a question of willpower. It's not, hey, just get up and shake it off and go to the gym. It's a question it? of an o- obesogenic environment. In the United States, you know, there are food deserts. It's extremely difficult to get around without a vehicle, meaning that people are forced to drive everywhere. Okay. Uh, and, and in Europe, the same people with the same kinds of attitudes about exercise end up much healthier because the environment kind of lends itself to healthy activities to, instead to moving of moving around uh, to, to walking three blocks instead of yeah driving. i mean in, in many cases if you live in downtown paris you, you can't hop in your car and drive to the grocery store you have to walk and that repeated over the course of a lifetime is the difference between a healthy heart and and functioning muscles and a, a mm. kind of narrow waistline versus mm. being obese. So so I think there's so much judgmentalism around it and so much of this idea that somehow it's a personal decision or a personal behavior when it's not. It, it's a really a collective thing. And we have to build mm. collective spaces that promote and make make health easy mm. as opposed to making health very difficult. I mean, imagine the typical like, oh, I'd love to ride my bike to work, but you live on the side of a six lane highway and, and it's a death sentence. I mean, it's it, a good it, point. It's, I, th- I think the United States has a really long way to go in making healthy choices easy for people, healthy food, healthy living, healthy modes of transport. Um, and unfortunately, I don't see a lot of progress on that front, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I, changing that overnight is going to be super hard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and now, now we just worry about now we try to just create drugs or shots that we can give ourselves to make ourselves lo- lose weight, right? What is the what's the new hot hot one right now in the press? Ozempic or something? I don't even know. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. I, I don't follow the space closely, and you know, it, you whatever whatever people need to do, do it right. And and I'm I'm not at all opposed to the medical interventions as well, but that stuff is so downstream to this these bigger problems that we have and. Mm-hmm. In the United States, yeah. which is that it's just very, very difficult to, to remain healthy when you're in an obesogenic environment, you know. Um, I want to ask you uh, just a couple more questions about just health in sure. general, public health in general, globally. What is, can you give us a, just a one or two stories of just things you've seen when it comes to sanitation or fresh water or the, yeah. the lack thereof on either one in a country or a place where you've been where you just, go back to your tent at night and you're just like, holy shit, I just cannot believe 
Americans take so many things for granted. Just turn on and turn it on the tap water and watching fresh water come out. And these people, I mean, can you give us a couple of stories if you don't mind? Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, dirty water largely kills young children, right? Okay. So diarrhea is, is we think of it as kind of an inconvenience or an right. embarrassing kind of funny thing to joke about. It's one of the largest murderers of children on earth. Right is is didn't know that didn't diarrhea know that. Ch cholera is uh, one disease that causes diarrhea uh, is is prevalent in a lot of developing areas and and can kill, I mean it, basically by dehydration right I was just gonna say uh, that's what happens they just get dehydrated yeah okay yeah, yeah exactly and, and and you know if you, if you happen to live three minutes from a hospital or from an ambulance call away once your baby starts convulsing as their as their electrolytes and and fluids go down you call them up and somebody jumps in and you get an IV and, and you probably save that kid's life. If you live a, you know, seven hour walk from the nearest health center, which is likely to be unstaffed because of government resources, that kid, that kid dies. Right. And, and mm -hmm. diarrhea is preventable. Diarrhea is treatable just like malaria, which is preventable and treatable. Another mass murderer of children. Fresh water, fresh yeah, water. And, Exactly. And, 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 you know, we have methods for water sanitation. It's not mystery. It's not rocket science. Uh, we know how to do it. And it's a question of resources, right? Um, and, and it's resource allocation and our values as, as a society where we put those resources. If you think of, you know, air, breathing air as a right and not a privilege to be purchased, it makes every uh, drop of sense that water should be the same way, mm. right? No child deserves to to die from dehydration regardless of the economic decisions of their parents or the fact that they didn't build a hydration system or a filtering system so so i mean i, I think i think there's a a human rights perspective on on a lot of diseases especially those that affect children predominantly like like those you know waterborne diseases like you know all the d different things that can cause diarrhea that that I think it's just a non-negotiable. Like every single child deserves clean water, and every single child more. deserves rapid treatment when when sick. You know, so and so. same same for sanitation, right? I mean, they they, they can't just have they can't have sewage flowing in a trench out back. Yeah, but you know, people don't choose to defecate in the open or or build a trench with the sewage. That you know, it, it's it's a lack of resources. It's corrupt governments. It's it's money going to the wrong places. Um. And and nobody wants to live in in filth, right? So like well, I wouldn't think so. Yeah, yeah. So and I mean, I mean, I've seen this again and again. I've lived in Nepal. I've lived in Mozambique. I've lived in Guatemala. Um, I've seen cases that of of illnesses that should never have happened in the first places, and then once having happened, of of severe cases that never should have gotten severe, and then sadly deaths that never should have occurred. And you know, we 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 talk a lot about life expectancy. And life expectancy used to be 40 and now it's 80. And you know, it's not that people started living used to die at 40 and started living to 80. People used to die at two and three and four. Yeah, yeah. It, that it was excuse the, the yeah, excuse excuse the the average. Exactly. Yeah. And and so these yeah. countries, if you look at South Sudan, right? Or, or the Democratic Republic of Congo, or these countries that are Afghanistan that are chronically low on the life expectancy. It's not. It's largely not people dropping dead at forty-three years old. It is. They do have. They do children. have older people over there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and if you get through those really dangerous first few years of life, those first five years of life, your likelihood of living to be eighty is, is actually pretty high, even in the really poor countries. It's but it's it's these mass murderers of children. 
right? Yeah. Malaria, pneumonia, diarrheal yes. disease. Yes. That I think it's it's kind of just insane that in 2023 we haven't we haven't you know prioritized. So this is a really hot topic with me, um, and I want to ask you this next one. And if you don't feel comfortable answering, we can always we can always edit it out. It might be it might be too politically sensitive. I don't know, but. You know, I've had a lot of people on the podcast, a lot of people that are world travelers, people that live in other countries and folks like yourself that um, have been around the block. And I just feel, especially right now, Joe, I feel like over the last 24 months, picking on the Gen Z a little bit in the US, you know, I just feel like there's so many things that the younger generations right now in the U S just take for granted because they, they haven't seen real problems like not having a toilet to use, you know, or not having fresh water to drink. And then I visit with these guys on the podcast and they're like, man, you know, some of the shit we complain about in the U S like, like Mary's complaining because she didn't get invited to the birthday party. Meanwhile, you know, in Africa, they just wish they had a toilet to use. They don't care about the birthday party. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I think it's it's worth going easy on people because largely that that kind of apathy or indifference towards uh -huh. the suffering of fellow man is is largely driven by ignorance. Right. And, and it's it's really I think a lot of folks don't know, don't know, I mean, don't know what's going on in the world. Right. And they yeah. don't know how good they have it. And they don't know how they don't bad know. others do. They and it doesn't have, have to be the poor, rich world divide. I mean, look, I've got functioning legs. Right. I will never be able to understand what it's like to be in a wheelchair. Mm. And what you know, I, I don't even notice the stairs that I skip up on my way into the right. office or something. And and, and so there, there's there's all sorts of forms of privilege that are not the typical archetypical. Hey, this is privileged and this is not right. I happen to be, for the moment, free of mental illness, right? Yes, and, and I don't I have the, the bear of depression clawing down on my shoulders and, and what that means for my day to day. And so, so yeah, absolutely, infectious disease and sanitation are huge issues, huge global issues. Huge. That, huge. But there's so much other things. And, and you know, in Africa, you're right, many people would, would kill for clean water. But hell, they would also like to be invited to the birthday party of their, their friend <laughs> down the street. You know, and in some ways, we're so similar to them. Uh, I mean, across across different countries, across different cultures. And and so I, I say, you... like, I think it's the duty of of educators and not just formal educators, teachers, but anybody who's talking to young people and has the chance yes, to influence go. people to point them towards sources of yes. of not not to lecture them on, on things, but to point them towards sources of interesting, real truth and experience mm. that that kind of shakes them out of their comfort zone and wakes them up. I, I was really fortunate to have received a good education. Yes. You know, one that shook Sounds me to like my it. core and made me really uncomfortable with lots of things. And 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 I think that's not a question of virtue. That's just a question of something I received. I got a gift. You know, somebody gave it to me. And 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 that's amazing. And I can't I can't hold any sort of uh resentments against those who didn't receive that gift, right? I can just yeah. try to help share the gift, which is which is education and awareness. Your parent your parents did a great job. By the way, are they uh are they, are mom and are they still they're still alive, I guess, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're still alive. They're they, they're not together, but they live in the same neighborhood. So they cross each other, you know, walking dogs and things like that. And <laughs> when I go to visit, I just kind of hop from house to house, you know. Are they uh are they upset because the grandkids are in are in Spain or they're like, come on, man, Spain is a long way. I can't where I can't 
Okay, so you know they, they love they love to visit. So and and Spain right. is a great place to visit. Um, okay. So I'm sure I'm sure they would love some more real FaceTime with with grandkids. But hey, it's nice to have right. an excuse to go to Spain. I'm I'm asking you that because I have two granddaughters and they both live out of state and I'm still mad about it. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean it, I get it, dude. Like I, I I think you don't understand what it's like to be a parent and how much you love your kids and how much you, until you have them yourself. Right. And now the idea that somehow my kids would go off and move to some other country and I, I almost want to forbid it. You know? I, I, and I'm not telling you this next thing to make you feel bad. So I'm not trying to rub it in. <laughs> I'm 50, I'm 56. And like, I've, I, I've cried, you know, I guess I've cried like hard, like maybe three or four times in my adult life. Right. Like not very often, but man, when my oldest son told me he was taking Rose and they were moving out of state, I fucking oh, yeah. I bawled like I was three years. I old. get it. I'm, I I would <laughs> I would too, right? So I, I guess like, I guess oh it doesn't God. get any easier. Anyway, sorry, <laughs> I didn't mean to rub that. Okay, let's all right. Let's get into it. So, so how does Hyfe come about? Give us the give us the the beginning journey. Um, tell us kind of how it happened, and then we'll go into what it does. Yeah. So, uh, Hyfe is a cough company. We're obsessed with cough. And it's not because of it's some narrow niche and we're just trying to do something weird and strange. Cough is is the world's most prevalent symptom. It's the primary reason that people show up at a doctor's office. And it's it's a, a symptom that's, you know, in everything from chronic conditions like COPD or asthma to infectious disease, you know, flu, COVID. I mean, every time you're uh, sick, every time you're sick, every, if you're sick with anything, the cough's in there, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And. <laughs> And, you know, if you think about the experience of modern medicine, precision medicine, you go to the doctor and you get poked and prodded and measured in every way, right? They're sticking things in your ears. They're taking temperature. They're taking blood. They're running tests. Mm -hmm. Think, though, when you go with a cough, this, this important symptom, what do they do? They ask you, how's your cough? And, and you're supposed to somehow answer not knowing almost anything, even about your own cough. And then that doctor who knows even less than you is going to treat your disease with that bit of information. And then a couple of days later say, Hey, it's working. How's your cough? And you say, it's, it's better. I mean, it's like, think of measuring temperature before the thermometer. You just put your hand on the, Hey, it's hot. It's cold, you know, yeah. or yeah. think of managing blood pressure, hypertension. Imagine doing that without a cuff, right? <laughs> without like, it would, it would be not only poor medicine, it would probably be criminal negligence. If I treated you for hypertension without actually taking your blood pressure. Meanwhile, people are being treated for cough all the time without measuring anything. You know how, you know how I make my doc, doctor measure it. Anytime I had a bad cough and I'd go see my doctor, like I'd hear him about to come into the room and I'd just yeah. start, I would start coughing a lot more <laughs> to make sure. <laughs> well, that shows you it's even worse of a measurement because suddenly he's taking exactly. this as his ground exactly. truth. Who knows how sick you really are. So, so <laughs> cough needs to be measured. That's just a truth. I, I, I don't think it's controversial. Ask any doctor, would they like to know when and how much and what kind of coughing their patients are, are doing. Yes, absolutely. The answer of yes, course. Absolutely. Right. Yes. And and unlike temperature, which we can actually measure it right then in the in the doctor's office, it's very hard to measure cough because it's the sporadic longitudinal thing. And I mean, unless the doctor's gonna come home with you and sit by your bed at night exactly. with a stopwatch and a clipboard, that they're not gonna know how much you're coughing at night, right? Yep. Yep. And 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 so we came to this idea that cough needs to be measured first and foremost years ago thinking about tuberculosis, right? This okay. classic infectious disease killer. I was 
I had been living in Nepal working on tuberculosis projects. I, I was working with Dr. Peter Small. He was the former head of the um, Stony Brook School of Global Health. Okay. He's now the chief medical officer of HIFE. And we just realized, man, cough, would it's already so useful in tuberculosis. It's used to diagnose. It's used uh, to monitor the effectiveness of treatment. Why aren't we doing more with cough, right? Okay. And so, so we started, you know, play, collecting audio of coughers, of TB coughers, looking at audio, looking at, you know, can we actually use algorithms to filter out between, say, coughs and non-coughs? Could we use that then to count coughs? Well, like I mean, just, volunteers, just, were you doing like case studies, like college students? Yeah, exa exactly. You, it, was, it was volunteers. It was small, okay. small right. studies. Okay. Um, it was kind of a side project. I was working okay. largely in case finding in Nepal. Peter was managing a lot of projects at the time. Right. It, was, it was this side thing. Hey, what about okay. using microphones, right? And think All about right. it. This, this was 2018, 2019. Turns out, you know, even in even in the poorest countries, the most remote areas, everybody had one of these things, right? A phone. Uh -huh. And that had a microphone. And that was just a game changer. The fact that people like uh, a, a Nepali sheep herder was walking around with a microphone on them all day. And there isn't that go. an interesting opportunity uh, yeah, to do yeah. something cool, yeah. right? Okay, I see it. So, so we, we had this kind of side project where we were just playing with it, and it largely for academic purposes, research, wondering, hey, what happens with cough? Well, can, can we describe cough? Can we differentiate cough from non-cough? Could we maybe envision something that we could get a grant for or something? You know, just it was a side project. And then COVID hit. And with COVID, if you, if you kind of rewind in your mind back to 2020, early 2020, there's the spread of this crazy new scary pathogen, which appeared at the time to have mortality as high as 10%, yeah. right? And it was in China, and then it was in Lombardy, Italy, and in Iran, and then in Spain and Madrid, and then New York. And this disease was spreading around the world. One of the symptoms, right, was was a dry cough. And we had no about, other I way forgot, to I know. about that. Now that you mentioned yeah, right, right? <laughs> I mean, people were locked down. We had no way to know, really. Tests weren't readily available. Yeah. And we had this idea like, hey, this cough stuff we've been talking about, we maybe it's applicable to more than just tuberculosis, right? And maybe in the absence of um, testing, because there was basically no testing in, in February, March 2020, right. maybe we could use people's microphones, which they're all carrying around, as a way to detect cough. And, and if, then you could imagine if you detected cough across a population, you'd be able to see, hey, this town is coughing a lot more than that town. Maybe there's more COVID there. You know, so so this idea that somehow we were going to use, create almost heat maps for cough, the spread of this pathogen cool. and, yeah. and detect it over space and time. And and, and that's that's kind of when we said, hey, let, let's take this cough stuff seriously. Let's not let's not do it as a side project. Let's let's like see if we can figure something else. Ah, so now, here, but now right? you're getting now you're getting into bootstrapping, cash raise. Plus, you need a developer to build the app for you because you guys are doctors, not app builders. So now you're having to gather a team and get some cash together. Yeah, I mean, so this this was a little bit before cash. This was just like, hey, what if we, what if okay. instead of spending ten minutes a day on this, we spend three oh, four see. hours a day on this, right? right. And, okay. And 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 then you know what if we made this into a company? Like what if we made a product? Because if we want this to be on all the microphones. It's got to be on all the phones, and then it's got to be an app. And if we need it, like you said, yeah. right? So, yeah. Yeah. and and we we kind of went through a few people in our network. Uh, a, a, a fellow who had worked a lot, built a few companies on his own. Julian Chirko. He's a Romanian living in, at the okay. time, uh, South Africa. Now he lives in Austria. Okay, and he 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 had a a young guy he had worked with on a number of projects, help 
software apps, Paul okay. Rieger, and the three of us were the co-founders, right? Um, and we said, hey, let, like, let's do this thing. Let's try this thing. No, no money at the time. We just, let's make an app, which would apply these AI algorithms, which I had kind of written, but, you know, okay. half-assed and, okay. and, and ship those on, on Android and iPhone out there into the wild and see if we can start counting costs. And maybe this will be the COVID, the, the killer COVID app, right? How and, are you going to get, how did you market to people to get them to sign up? Uh, we didn't, we just stuck it out there. Right. And I think we made, you know, we made, we, Interesting. The, Interesting. we made a landing page. We, 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 people start, I don't know. People we started signing about up. it. And, people started signing. People started signing well, up. This is where things get really interesting. And this is one of the most useful startup lessons I could perhaps impart on others is in order to learn, you have to do, you can't learn first and then do you have to do so as to learn. And so we thought we're going to make a COVID app, right? And it, because everybody's doing COVID right now, this is going to be a killer app. What you just said. So who, how did the people start signing? Who's signing up for this, right? People with COVID didn't really want to download this app. They were busy worrying about COVID, right? But we still started getting dozens and then hundreds and then thousands of downloads uh, from chronic coughers. People oh. who didn't have COVID, but for whom cough was itself the disease, right? And I was coming from an infectious disease background. I had never even heard of chronic cough. I did not know that chronic cough was a disease, but and I would never is, think of I would never think of searching for the word cough in the Google App Store because you don't have a chronic cough. But if you were one of the oh, uh, I you see. Know, four point. to ten percent of Americans who have chronic cough, I see you already live with this discomfort. You already have trouble going to your kid's piano recital or a movie theater, okay, or okay. or, or coughing yeah. right. mid meal and spitting out your food. In the case of a lot of women, which primarily affects women. Uh, you know, there's a lot of urinary incontinence caused by cough. I didn't uh, know that. People that break their ribs because they're coughing so hard. I mean, there, there's chronic cough's a real thing. I had no idea. But what's so great about doing so as to learn, as opposed to learning so as to do, is we did this thing. We shipped this app. It was half baked. It was bad. It were was paying for market. Were you paying for like ad marketing, AdWords? Were you like? Paying no, anything nothing, to make nothing, a nothing, We just nothing, stuck it out there. Nothing. We just stuck it out into the wild, right? <laughs> I mean, we, we weren't even taking ourselves seriously at this point. I We're love like, it. Let's just do this, and it's so good. And then these people started showing up. And you're and calling, we, you're calling your buddies. You're like, holy shit, we got like two hundred more downloads today. <laughs> yeah, like who who are these people downloading? And and then they would leave us reviews. It would be like a three star review. Oh, and it would be like, hey, this stung. is great, but I went on that's a hike. And it said I coughed 500 times. I think it was detecting my dog's bark as cough or something. You know, like okay, the app okay. was not good. good. It was half-baked. Well, good but feedback. Was, yeah, it was super useful feedback. And it was, they were so desperate for something, some tool that, that would they help took them the time, manage That they took the time. That they took yeah. the time to write to us. They stuck with us. We'd write mm -hmm. back and say, hey, thanks so much. We're now going to wow. train the retrain the model, teaching cool. it that dog barks are not coughs. <laughs> Please, please stick around. And then a week later, they'd say, "Hey, look, it works now. It's no longer picking up my dog's bark." Wow, and you and know what? Like, you know what? That that user is now a user for life because they felt exactly. like they contributed. Yeah. And and so we had a ton of these experiences, and and we built one thing for some for for one. You know, we built a product thinking it fit the market in a certain way, and it turns out it didn't. It fit a completely different market. But we never would have learned that workshopping or whiteboarding or brainstorming we never mm. would have you we had to we couldn't stumble upon chronic cough because we were too ignorant what we had to do was build something put it out in the wild and then the chronic coughers stumbled upon us how about that right 
and, and in some ways, I mean, we, we still have lots of researchers using Hyph and our, our, our algorithms for infectious disease, for COVID, all sorts of applications. And it's not okay. that this is not useful for infectious disease. It's just that our sweet spot, our real product market fit is with chronic cough because it's so neglected, because it's so useful for chronic coughers and in the management of their symptoms, right? To be able to quantify this thing because the applicability when you have a disease that lasts 365 days a year is much greater than when you have an acute infectious episode that goes away after three days. This and, is and, go, go, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was just going to, I was going to stop you there for just a second. Tell the listeners hyph is H Y F E dot AI hyph dot AI, right? That's correct. Yes. URL. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And you can find hyph on uh, Apple and Google. I'm assuming both either one. Yeah. Um, let me ask you, because I know now we're going to edging up on your time. I want to ask you, Joe, what is, so does it cost to download the app? No. So right, right now, no. Okay. Um, in the United States, cough tracker is free. It will remain okay. free. Okay. And, and how and are the you, rest what of the is world, your, cough what? pro will one day transition to a premium model. Okay. And, how and are you making cool. money? What's the business model? Yeah. So, so we license, uh, our, 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 we've been talking about our apps, right? Those are out there in the wild. They are great. They are a way that we learn a ton about coffers, coffers with COPD, with GERD, with refractory chronic cough, with infectious disease, old people, young people. I mean, it's a great source of data collection okay. for us. It is not our, our revenue model. Okay. Right? What is the revenue? Our revenue model is we're a B2B company and we license our algorithms, our cough detection and analysis algorithms uh, and analysis platforms to those that are studying cough. So this is researchers and pharmaceutical companies. I see. And to those who want to use cough to save money. So this is remote patient monitoring companies who are very interested in preventing costly, let's say hospitalizations or emergency room visits from those with, let's say, mm. COPD, asthma, congestive heart failure. I mean, people, people who are being remotely monitored, hospital at home type situations, mm, mm. knowing when their coughs deviate from baseline, when they have mm -hmm. an episode coming, if you can identify that early and intervene, mm. you prevent that person from showing up in an emergency room. And if you're wow. the payer, if you're the insurer, or you're that monitoring company, that knowledge mm. is, is extremely valuable. So, okay. So I see your, okay. So I see your end consumer. What does the uh, cons what does the consumer get out of it that's downloading the app? What's it doing for me if I'm downloading the app? What do I get out of that? Yeah, so so in, in the case of like, let's say pharma, it wouldn't be some consumer downloading the app. It would be a clinical trial where you might- No, be no, 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 me, no, no, for me, if I, if I get- if I get the app, yeah. what do I, what do I, what's it yeah, doing? So, so in, in the case of the case of somebody out there in the wild who downloads cough tracker in the United States, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what you get is the ability to monitor and quantify and analyze a symptom that you never previously could. Right. And what so am like, I doing with it? Giving it to my doctor? Yeah. Well, often. Yes. So we, we hear a lot from uh, users that they show up at the doctor's offices and doctors are actually really interested. They say, oh, wow. You know, and and for many, it's a kind of validating experience because the doctor for the first time ever takes them seriously when they say, I cough all the time. And they're like, OK, yeah, yeah. And then you show them I cough all the time and they see 900 coughs in one day and 135 coughs from 3 a.m. to 4 a.m. They say, oh, wow. Um, often, you know, the, the, the therapeutics for chronic cough, there's not a lot of actual drugs out there. And a lot of it is behavioral. So there's behavioral cough suppression therapy, for example. Mm. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is is related to triggers. So people who have chronic cough, 
It's way worse in certain contexts. But if you don't have good data on this, you actually don't even know what your triggers are. You're just one day you're coughing terribly, one day. But when you once you can see that data, you can say, wow, isn't that interesting? I cough every day in the afternoon, right around 2 p.m. I get really bad. And then you realize it's right after I eat. And that one day that I took that I skipped lunch because I was busy, I didn't have that cough episode. And that leads to an insight, which is if I cough after I eat, maybe this has to do with the pH in my gut and I have uh -huh. GERD. Right. It's, it's acid reflux, basically. Whereas another person might have, man, isn't that crazy? I'm coughing 100 times an hour. And then when I go to sleep, I don't cough at all. If you're not coughing while you're sleeping, it's likely, quote unquote, tick cough. It's a neural connectivity issue, a hypersensitivity and an okay. overdeveloped cough reflex. And therefore, you're likely susceptible to, say, P2X3 inhibitors, which is a new kind of therapy for treating people with tick cough. So And, so it, and the app like has given me the app has given me this information. So I am getting as the user of the app, I'm getting useful information for me. It's not just data that you're getting to sell the, to Pfizer. Well, what's, I, what's, what's so interesting about chronic coughers is that they they are already kind of citizen scientists, right? So I see. we don't need I to see. say, hey, you have GERD. One, I because uh, that's kind of a dangerous area to enter and start diagnosing. Yeah, because, I got you. And two, yeah. legally you can't, right? Regulatorily you have to I go see. through. I but but it just just displaying this information. I mean, it's like, look at your step count, right? You know, when you're being sedentary or active, right. just by looking at your step count, you don't need somebody to translate that to, hey, get off your ass, right? So it's a similar kind of thing. Chronic coughers, give them this data, the hourly cough counts, for example, and let them see the trends. They know in many cases what to do with it. Now, now RPM companies, it's a different thing. They might want kind of an alert system, right? Imagine a fire alarm in a way, like we want to know when a COPD exacerbation is coming. We want to know when a congestive heart failure decompensation episode is occurring. And what's what, what, what we're doing on the AI side is partnering with researchers, harvesting data of people with these conditions, so as to build algorithms that can identify these events, right? So Very that we good. can say, you Very have, good. This, this patient has a COPD exacerbation coming, it's time to intervene, right? That, that's that's the end game here. The people that are buying your data, are they supportive enough to help you get more users? I'm guessing you're, you, I mean, do, are they like, yes, get us more users. Yes, we want more data. Are they Are they constantly pushing like, here, here's a million dollars of marketing money. Get more people to download. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, so most of our, we have so many users. I mean, we have tens of thousands of users from whom okay. we've collected cough sounds and at, at some point, the the returns on that are diminished. I see. We just I don't see. need that much data. What uh, we really need, and what we we are focused on right now, is users from research trials. So this is not the the person who downloaded the app out in the wild, but rather a person who's enrolled in the study because they have a known condition, and because that doctor or researcher with whom we're partnering can give us not only that cough data that which we're collecting through our applications, but also their medical information, right? Okay. So we can send this user into a study. That's That study, now we not only have, let's say, these 750 coughs for Steve during the course of his hospitalization, but we also have his age, the drugs he was on, when the drugs were initiated, his outcome, you know, mm -hmm. whether he's intubated or he died or he, he you know, had a good recovery. Or, and it's, it's the pairing of that hard-to-get medical data with all of this cough data that allows you to build these algorithms, which predict medical events and outcomes, right? Do you... Do you see this? And I know we're out of time. I'm going to ask you one more question here, if you don't mind, as we wrap up. No, no rush. Do you see it? I'm going to use a comparison. I use a CPAP machine. Yeah. Now, I'm guessing, I don't know the history on CPAP machines, but I'm guessing at first, maybe it wasn't FDA approved or not, not FDA, it wasn't a drug, the, the Federal Drug 
administration hadn't approved it. I'm guessing insurance companies didn't cover it at first, whatever. And then somebody was like, hey, look, man, this machine supplies all this cool data about how this, this guy's breathing at night. And then, and then at some point, insurance has started covering it. It's approved. This, do, you yeah, see, exactly. do, do you see that? Is that where you're headed? A hundred percent. It's inevitable that cough counting is coming, right? Okay. And there's a number of players in the space. We're the best at it. I hope we remain the best at it. Great. But right. but it, it is too important and too interesting and too relevant for it not to become uh, an, a common medical use case. Right now, we're in the wellness space, right? The same way you can count your steps or you can put a right. heart rate monitor yeah. on and yeah. go for a jog. But that's changed. You're That'll on. be changing. You'll be jumping. The, you'll be jumping the creek. <laughs> it, it is. And in, in fact, we've already carried out a trial for FDA cool. clearance validation. Cool. Well, you know, to show that this works, we're in conversations. We've had three pre-submission meetings with the FDA we'll submit at the awesome. end of this year awesome. for clearance so that this can be integrated more into medical decision making. Right. Uh, but we know that it's a process great. and we got to do step by step. And right now, this is a new, completely new biomarker, a completely new endpoint. Right. And so just allowing people to know how much they cough, a lot of people are doing a lot with that information and, and that's fine. Right. Bootstrapped, bootstrapped to this point or seed no, so money. We, angel? We, we've, we've raised, we, 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 we got some, non-dilutive funding early on, you know, to do some work, especially in the developed world where, or the developing world, which was kind of our sweet spot. In do you our mean grant? Story. Grants. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, th yeah. Then we raised, we raised a seed. Uh, oh, you did. And, okay. and we've also got a significant amount of revenue. So, so especially like I said, cool. this chronic cough space, a, lo a lot of pharma companies in particular said, Hey, we want, we want to work with you, right? We want to license your algorithms. We want to consider running you in our trials. We want to get to know chronic coughers. We want to build tools for chronic coughers with you. Um, cough Tracker, for example, in the United States, we've built with Merck, with Merck oh, Pharmaceuticals, because sweet. Merck is extremely interested in in the future of chronic cough. It has a lot to do with the fact that they have a chronic cough medication. Have these the guys, have people like Merck already said, hey, look, we'll just buy you right now? Uh, they haven't. Uh, we're not in a rush to be acquired. We, we think we're building really cool stuff, and we really yep. love working working with them. Okay. Um, but who knows? You yeah, know. yeah, who knows? Hyfe, <laughs> H-Y-F-E dot A-I, Hyfe. Um, I could probably ask you a million more questions, but I've already kept you over, Joe. Sorry about that. No uh, problem, man. Uh, congratulations, my friend, on everything you're uh, building. I think your next round of funding will go well, especially if revenues are significant. That always helps those Series A rounds. That helps. You know, it puts us in a better <laughs> in a better negotiating position. Now you're sure. now you're a, you're the CEO, so you're gonna you're gonna be shaking hands, kissing babies, trying to get rich people to write checks. So good luck with that. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's part of the job, you know. <laughs> it is. It is, Joe. Thanks for being on the show. I appreciate you. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, Steve. Thanks a lot.